Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, crazy martinis for conservatives today. And uh, plenty to chat about, especially the president's trip, which we'll get to in the final martini. But, uh, Jim, let's talk about our good martini, because one of the really odd arguments that often comes up from the uh, pro-choice side of the abortion debate is, uh, that uh, conservatives and pro-lifers only care about babies before they're born. Afterwards, uh, don't care so much. And so one of the things that comes up after a Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade and so forth is, well, you better be prepared to make the guys pay child support then. And every pro-lifer is like, uh, yeah, we're totally in favor of that. So I'm not really sure what the, what the, what the uh, fuss is about that. But now it's becoming actual legislation. Uh, the Hill reporting that Senators Marco Rubio of Florida and Kevin Kramer of North Dakota introduced a bill on Wednesday that would allow mothers to collect child support beginning at conception. The bicameral bill would amend the Social Security Act, quote, to ensure that child support for unborn children is collected and distributed under the Child Support Enforcement Program. Under the bill, mothers would be able to request child support from the month of conception onward, but would not be required to do so. Mothers would also be able to choose whether to collect child support payments retroactively through the month of conception, including if paternity is only established after the birth of the child. Kramer says of the bill, caring for the well-being of our children begins long before a baby is born. It begins at the moment, uh, first moment of life, conception, and fathers have obligations, financial and otherwise, during pregnancy. There are already eight um, Republican senators co-sponsoring the bill. So, Jim, who knows, with Chuck Schumer controlling the Senate, whether this will get any traction. Uh, the Democrats certainly seem uh, more focused on getting unrestricted abortion access through through Congress and trying to codify that following the Supreme Court decision. But, uh, you know, they, they've been saying now that Republicans should put their money where their mouth is. And so here we are. Good. I was going to say, Greg, there are two aspects of this that fascinate me. The first is if you are a Democrat who believes that the government has a duty as the capability and the duty and the obligation to help people when they're at a tough time in their lives. Here you have Republicans saying, hey, you know what? We're usually, allegedly we're fiscal conservatives. We know that's not where they're, Republicans very rarely emphasize that as much as they used to. <laughs> but you know, here's here's a form of spending. Here's a form of, of social welfare that Republicans are fine with because they recognize this as, you know what? One, the number of people who are in this situation very often do, you know, often do have a new financial pressure. I mean, that's even you know accurate before inflation was, was running out of control. Um, women who are pregnant, you know, all of a sudden you got different dietary needs. As the old saying, you're eating for two. Uh, they need more frequent health checkups. They need, uh, sometimes you can have you know, difficult pregnancies and you're immobilized. Then you can have, you know, I, I was always kind of struck when they talked about, you know, whether employers should be required to have maternity leave. If you've ever been around a woman who is seven, eight, nine months pregnant, you don't want her on the assembly line. You don't want her operating a forklift. You don't want her doing, you know, she's feeling, she's, you know, having all kinds of crazy changes going through her body. She's probably not going to be the way she usually was. Now, maybe if you're working behind a desk, it's a little more manageable. And obviously this should be done with the pregnant employee, you know, in mind. What, what can you handle? What can you not handle? But pregnancy is a lot. Pregnancy is very intense. This is why you want to have support for this. The other thing that's been fascinating about this are the number of Democrats and liberals who seem to think the conservative position is uh, abortion should be illegal and the father should not be obligated to do anything. And the, I guess the suspicion is that there's 
you know, all conservative men are deep rooted hypocrites. And, you know, we, we just want to get them pregnant and then not have to worry about any of these things. It's been fascinating to watch things like, you know, actor Ken Olin, who you may remember from 30 something, which I believe Greg was on the air 30 something years ago. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm sure yeah, I, I understand he's been a director. And I mean, you know, but basically this is not the biggest name in Hollywood, shall we say. But he says in states where abortion is illegal, the father should be financially on the hook at the moment of conception, he tweets out. And I wonder if he's discussed by all the conservatives who are like, yes. <laughs> you know, like there's this bizarre sense of like, maybe conservatives have always believed in irresponsible sex and never fathers not having any role in the uh, raising of their children. No, no, that's, a, that's exactly opposite of what we've thought, right? If you bring a, a child into this world, you are responsible for that. You are its father. And let's face it, ideally, you're going to spend that role in that child's life for the rest of your days. You know? So yeah, this, this, it's been fascinating to see the number of folks on the left who think that the entire conservative philosophy is about punishing women and has nothing to do with actually wanting to help the child grow into a happy, healthy uh, adult human being. So you know, one, this is good. One, this is, you know, you're kind of surprised this isn't the law now because yes, you know, pregnant women and you know, mothers-to-be do have quite a few new expenses. Never mind purchasing the crib and you, know, you have a nursery and getting formula. Well, that was back in the days when we could get formula, Greg. Um, yes. All these other expenses that come into your life with a new child, and very often they kick in before the birth. So good for you, Senator Rubio. Good for you, other senators. Hopefully this becomes law. Well, this is mainly aimed at making the fathers pay child support, right? This isn't uh, another government assistance program. There is a, a companion piece of legislation that Rubio is sponsoring that would uh, expand the child tax credit, provide special funding to WIC and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so there's a little bit more of government spending. But most of this is just making sure the dads are responsible here, right? Indeed. But okay. nonetheless, you know, I was going to say, if you wanted to get conservatives to support social spending, this is the time to do it and this is the way to do it. But uh, I think they'd rather have this issue to run on the midterm elections. They'd rather have this fight. Uh, there's actually room for, you know, so, social conservatives actually want to help people. They just have different ideas of what the government's role ought to be. There's common ground here. Democrats are too dumb to recognize it. Yeah. Yeah. Good opportunity. But I think you're right. It's not going to happen. Uh, another piece of legislation that may or may not happen uh, is Senate Resolution 2992, and that's what our first sponsor of the day, NetChoice, is uh, focused on right now. Uh, they point out that our country is being rocked by soaring inflation, lackluster leadership, and chaos on the world stage. They say Americans need their legislators to focus on the issues that matter and ease the economic pain we're all feeling. Instead, senators like Amy Klobuchar are pushing a big government takeover of America's tech industry through progressive regulations that would worsen inflation and make important digital services like Amazon Prime more expensive and harder to use. Conservatives must block progressive pet projects that will raise prices and undermine our world's standing. These lawmakers need to keep American innovation the best in the world. NetChoice wants you to join it in telling Congress to stop rising prices and reject progressive tech regulations like Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. The Supreme Court's decision reigning in the EPA might be the most critical Supreme Court decision of the year. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, John Vecchioni and Casey Norman of the New Civil Liberties Alliance join me to explain the ruling and long-term impact it may have in our fight against the administrative state. Join me. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, Jim, our final two martinis will focus on the Biden administration. We'll get to his uh, trip overseas in, in just a little bit. But uh, first of all, uh, a new report obtained by the Washington Free Beacon taking a look at how much uh, border prosecutions and apprehensions plummeting uh, in the first uh, year of Joe Biden's presidency. Uh, this is U.S. Border Patrol Southwest Border Apprehensions Fiscal Years 2019, 2020, and 2021. And in the category of migrants transferred to the U.S. Marshal Service for prosecution, fiscal year 2019, meaning it you know started in late 2018 and went to the end of September 2019, uh, 20,604. Fiscal year 2020, which of course is much of the worst part of the pandemic, 13,213. Fiscal year 2021, Jim, 2,896, which you would think, you know, if you were a logically thinking person, oh, there must have been a lot fewer people coming to the border at that point. Well, the exact opposite, of course, we know is true. Uh, people have been flooding the border ever since the start of the Biden administration, yet uh, actually uh, apprehending people and prosecuting people for breaking our law seems to be microscopic compared to where it was uh, just before he came into office. Indeed, Greg. And, you know, on those rare times you can get a liberal or progressive to engage on the issue of illegal immigration, you point to these skyrocketing numbers about uh, encounters on the border from Customs and Border Patrol. Usually they'll say, well, you know, that's good. That means they're catching, you know, they're being caught at the border. What are you complaining about, conservatives? Well, actually, no. I mean, I think we all have a certain amount of logic here that if the Customs and Border Protection are encountering more people at the border, they work very hard. They do the very best they can, but they're overstretched. They don't have nearly enough staff. They, this is one of the reasons they wanted to have border fencing. They didn't say you needed a Great Wall of China from, you know, the Atlantic, Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific. They just needed more border fencing so that we kind of funnel them into areas so that their limited manpower, they could catch more of them. If they're encountering more, there are probably more people trying to get through. And if there are more people trying to get through, you probably do have more people entering the country illegally. But even for the ones you do capture, the ones you do encounter, um, you like to think, well, at least we're prosecuting them and deporting them and that's stopping them. But as we can see here in these numbers, that's not necessarily the case. And the plan has been to, oh, we're going to ship them to this part of the country. We're going to ship them to that part of the country. We're going to wait. We're going to, oh, they're claiming asylum. we got to sit down and wait and, you know, review that process. There's this huge backlog. It's going to take forever. Matthew Cottonetti, who writes for NR and uh, Washington Free Beacon and a couple other places, had this very good column where he kind of observed, like, you notice, like, this is a problem that's been there since about two months into the Biden administration. February, you know, February numbers were okay. March, all of a sudden it jumped. And that's when... Uh, Biden has infamous statement. This is, you know, every single year this happens. This is just part of a seasonal pattern. It's nothing out of the ordinary. And then month after month after month, you started seeing these huge numbers of encounters at the southwest border. And Biden would tell you he does not want to have open borders, but he doesn't seem to be doing anything about this higher rate. Of, he doesn't certainly doesn't act with any degree of urgency, with any sense of, I, I'd say that he doesn't act with very much energy, but um, he doesn't in fact act with very much energy in, in much of anything these days. Uh, but there's really kind of this sense that, like, if Biden said, well, we want to have open borders, okay, the policy would make sense. People would be very up in arms about it. You'd be, you know, all kinds of, of furious denunciations of it. But you'd say, okay, well, the reason we have a policy that seems like open borders is because we have open borders. We don't have that. Biden says he doesn't want that. But Biden doesn't seem to take any action. He certainly doesn't. There's no sense of crisis. There's no sense of uh, putting additional resources. He stopped the construction of the border uh, fencing where it was. So there's just, you know, Biden just kind of like, oh, this is, you know, oh, we're, we're taking care of it. And then nothing happens. And that's why this is, you know, so extraordinarily frustrating. I think this is one, you know, 
obviously inflation is going to be front and center in people's minds, gas prices, food prices, and things like that. But the fact that we've basically had now, you know, coming up on two years of not, if not an open border, then an utterly overwhelmed U.S. Customs and Border Protection and, and really minimal effort. We've seen all these horrible stories about 40 people being stuck in a truck and dying of asphyxiation or dying in car accidents and stuff like that. Um, I mean, just go to the, the press page of the Customs and Border Protection. Every day is some sort of like, I can't believe I saw that. Oh my goodness, you know, uh, stories of rescuing people out of the Rio Grande. Like, you, you could even, you know, however you feel about amnesty or however you feel about the 11 million people here who are here illegally, you probably should look, well, this is not a good thing. This is, you know, we have kids dying. We have all kinds of people in dangerous situations. People should not be risking their lives. I know we sent down Kamala Harris to the Central America. Surprisingly, that didn't fix it. And we just kind of have this like, all right, what are we willing to do about this? And, you know, the attitude of the Biden administration all too often seems to be shrugging and, you know, moving on to the new, waiting for it to leave the news cycle, which it inevitably does because, you know, some other crisis will come along to displace it. Right. And we've had these record numbers now month over month uh, for quite a while here from uh, the illegal entries into the country. And now, of course, Jim, the Supreme Court agreed that the Biden administration has the right to end Title 42, remain in Mexico while your asylum claim is being adjudicated. So those numbers aren't going to get any better uh, in the next few months here. We'll, we'll see where they go, though. All right, on to our third martini now, and this is Biden again. This time his trip overseas. Uh, first he went to Israel and then Saudi Arabia. He also spent some time uh, with the Palestinian leader, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, where he made the curious comments of comparing the Israeli-Palestinian problem to uh, Ireland and Great Britain, which did not sit well with uh, a lot of people on the Israeli side of this debate, uh, Jim. But uh, perhaps the, the issue getting more attention is his visit to Saudi Arabia, because, of course, as you've documented, as we've talked about on the podcast many times, uh, following the uh, killing of Jamal Khashoggi at the uh, Saudi consulate in Istanbul a couple of years back, Joe Biden promised to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. Until Joe Biden decided he didn't want to ramp up U.S. domestic energy production, then he sort of kind of realized that we can't do it all on renewables, and so he needs to get it from somewhere uh, while he still tries to uh, squeeze out the fossil fuels in this country. So uh, Saudi Arabia is one of the places he's trying to make that happen. He had a public statement on Friday making it sound like the Saudis had agreed to increase production. The Saudi statement is quite a bit more vague than that. They have not said anything about upping production. Uh, but uh, if it sees a shortage, they might address it and they'll do everything through the auspices of OPEC, which is not exactly the breakthrough statement that Biden was making us think uh, was happening here on Friday. Uh, perhaps getting even more attention than that was the greeting uh, between Biden and Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, uh, the fist bump rather than the handshake, which got all sorts of anger. Uh, across the political spectrum, Jim, including the Washington Post, where Khashoggi, of course, had been a, at least a freelance columnist. Uh, Fred Ryan, the publisher and CEO of the Washington Post, saying, quote, the fist bump between President Biden and Mohammed bin Salman was worse than a handshake. It was shameful. It projected a level of intimacy and comfort that delivers to MBS the unwarranted redemption he has been desperately seeking, unquote. And so Biden and his uh, press appearance tried to downplay that. When he got back to the White House, he was downplaying it again, saying, ask me some real questions. So, uh, Jim, I'm not sure what he hoped to accomplish on this trip. It seems murky that he got what he wanted on the increased oil production from the Saudis. So in the end, what's the report card for Biden's trip to the Middle East? Pretty much an F. <laughs> and one, one of the things that we all knew this was going to be 
uh, an unpleasant trip for Biden. That there'd been a lot of back and forth about should Biden go to Saudi Arabia? If he does, he's got to meet MBS. Do they handshake? All that kind of stuff. And I saw somebody trying to argue that, oh, no, no, because it was a fist bump, it was very casual. It was less respectful than other gestures that Biden could have made. And I just kind of ask people, does MBS look embarrassed? Does he look chagrined? Does he look like he's feels like, does he seem like he's being disrespected? Or does he look happy as pleased? Does he look pleased as punch? That basically, like the cat that ate the canary, so to speak, the sense of, uh, no, he's getting what he wants. A you know, photo op, big meeting with the president of the United States, who has come here hat in hand to effectively beg Saudi Arabia to increase domestic oil production. We all knew that we figured, okay, you know, MBS is going to get this fantastic, you know, geopolitical PR moment, and in exchange, the U.S. would get some relief on high oil, high, high gas prices. You know, Saudi Arabia would pledge to increase production, and this would. Uh, make get some results and that would bring down the price of oil around the globe, which would make things, you know, easier for U.S. drivers, you know, right now in the middle of this long, hot, painful summer. Didn't get that. Very vague wording there. And I understand, okay, it's diplomacy. Sometimes you have some euphemisms. There's always some strategic ambiguity. Uh, Saudi Arabia wants doesn't want to say yes, because, you know, we're doing exactly what Biden wanted or something. But there were two aspects. The first is that we didn't get any concrete commitments out of this, which I think is a little unnerving. I think Fred Hyatt and the folks at the Post have every reason to be livid, considering how Biden spoke on the campaign trail. And this is a pretty much a complete 180. Um, but then the other thing which kind of struck by it, which really, I think, looks to suggest the, um, the irresp- I think the degree to which Biden's approached this has just utterly backfired in his face. And also, it's turned out bad for the country. Like, you and I criticize Biden on this podcast a lot. It's starting to reach a point where I feel, I feel bad for him. He really seems utterly in over his head. And his instincts are terrible and things always, you know, not only things go wrong for him, like it's, it's embarrassing to watch the president of the United States, as I put in the newsletter today, metaphorically getting sand kicked in his face. He, he looks bullied. He looks like a chump. He looks like somebody other people are taking advantage of. And in this case, Biden cl- apparently decided, well, I'm going to be nice in public. We're going to do the fist bump. And then behind closed doors, I'm going to get tough with them. And I'm going to, you know, take bring up the Khashoggi killing. So Biden has this press conference in Saudi Arabia, not with another Saudi official, in which he says, yes, I brought this up at the beginning of the meeting. Now, I hope Biden is telling the truth. I don't think I don't know for certain that he did. It is troubling that the Saudi officials came out and said, no, we don't remember him bringing it up. Now, I don't know if Biden expected the Saudis to play along. I don't know if he expected the Saudis to be quiet about whether he brought it up. But the Saudis came out and said, no, he didn't. He didn't say that. And now it looks like Biden is, you know, this this, you know, easily bullied wimp who then comes out of the meet, who's afraid to bring up the issue and then comes out of the meeting and says he was a tough guy behind closed doors. And then the Saudi is like, what are you talking about? You're eager to grovel to us. You're just trying to get along with us. Um, it's really embarrassing. It's really bad. And if you if you've done all this and you at least gotten a solid increase in oil production, it's like, well, OK, you could point to that. If you'd gotten, you know, detained Americans released, you'd get something to do with that. Um, but instead, as the Washington Post editors point out, he didn't get anything real all that concrete. They're going to invest in 5G technology or something. It was just the most obvious, transparent fig leaf. And we all kind of knew, all right, sometimes you're president of the United States. You got to deal with some unsavory leaders. His mouth ran away with him as, you know, kind of traditional for Biden on the campaign trail. He made a promise he was never going to be able to keep. He's got to go. He's got to, you know, have the meeting and then we'll, you know, rip off the Band-Aid. And now it looks like Saudi Arabia just doesn't even want to give him that. You know, it's like, you know, oh, we're going to take your concessions. 
and we're gonna give you nothing in response we're gonna laugh at you afterwards because you're gullible and naive and uh, you know this is just a bad spot biden is getting raked over the coals and he kind of like there are times where you're like okay he's president he doesn't have complete control of this in this one it was his choice to pledge to make saudi arabia a pariah and if he'd stopped and thought about it for a moment he probably would have realized oh you know what they cooperate with certain counterterrorism issues. They're guardians of Mecca and Medina. They're very influential in the Arab world. They kind of give a wink and a nod approval to other Arab states, being, you know, getting more friendly with is with Israel. You know, there's we they're too important for us to say we're sh- we're cutting shutting off all ties, which is what making them a pariah would require. Oh, by the way, they're also the largest uh, purchaser of U.S. weapons systems. It was never realistic. But he was on a kid primary, so he had to look good. He had to say, oh, well, I'm going to be the boldest. I'm going to be the strongest. And of course, now he looks the weakest and most ridiculous. It's really a bad day for President Biden. It's not surprising to see him snapping at the media. And I'm just going to another private. Oh, yeah, it's the media's fault, President Biden. Yes, they're, 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 they're the real villains here. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right that it was never realistic that he could pursue that, and it was never the right policy, uh, even as grisly as the Khashoggi story was. Uh, the realities of the Middle East require a relationship, both economically and in strategic foreign policy. And, you know, what was the thing that, that Biden did <laughs> right before he left Israel on his way over there? Oh, you know what the best way is to secure peace in the region? Let's revive the Iranian nuclear deal. Yeah, you think the Saudi Arabians want the Iranian nuclear deal back in place? <laughs> the last thing they <laughs> want is uh, having the Iranians with uh, safeguards in place to uh, give a wink and a nod uh, to uh, being able to pursue their program in certain locations where the rest of the world can't watch. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know, like, like we can see this. Clearly, his advisors can see this. Why is he, you know, not seeing it? I don't know. He still thinks he's able to do things that other people know he absolutely can't. But uh, we'll see where yeah. it goes from here. Jim, have a good Monday. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thanks so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a big help to us. Also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday, and please join us again on Tuesday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters joins me to discuss why he believes it's game over for the U.S. if the Democrats win the midterms. I'm Sarah Carter on the latest Sarah Carter Show. I'll also ask Masters about President Trump and Elon Musk and tell you how President Biden is sending our precious energy reserves to Hunter Biden's buddies in China. Join me. Follow the Sarah Carter Show on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.